This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Dimitri Sirota, CEO and co-founder of Big Idea. Once we kind of did that straw man strategy of being able to kind of say, here's a thesis, we're going to test it. I think once we did that, we kind of like doubled down on that particular area. Once we found kind of a pressure point, we kind of said, okay, let's just focus on this and do a good job here. And so that's what kind of got us through the first two years. I sometimes describe that as a swim lane. We needed a clear, definable swim lane that we could own that was differentiated from other technology players. And we went down that path and we invested in that path. And it actually worked out for us. We were able to do the classic, you know, 5X revenue in year one, 3X revenue in year two. This is Dimitri. He's got over a decade of experience as a privacy expert and identity veteran and is an established serial entrepreneur, investor, mentor, and strategist. He's also recognized as one of the leading authorities in startups and company team building, receiving numerous recognitions, including being named an Entrepreneur of the Year finalist by Ernst Young in 2021 and 2022. Today, he's a CEO and co-founder of Big Idea, a modern data intelligence platform that helps customers solve data protection, privacy, and governance challenges. Their thinking, Data drives business, and data is the critical factor for all business, not just to persevere, but to continue to innovate. And as such, Big Idea is on a mission to help every type of organization know their data, take action on their data, and unleash their data's value just to do that. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Dimitri to my podcast. We explore the challenges that companies face in rethinking their approach to data, where they essentially have become the custodian as opposed to being the owner. Dimitri explains the novel approach that they have taken to solve this. He shares his route towards product market fit and carving out a business model that could fuel their exponential growth. He tells about their approach to creating defensible differentiation and their ability to expand their story ahead of the competition catching up. Last but not least, he shares his advice on how to create a software business that creates products that customers fall in love with. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, 
how to create your own blue ocean within a large red ocean. Secondly, the single most important answer to look for when defining product strategy. Thirdly, when is the right moment to move on and expand your story? And lastly, the three things you should avoid doing as an early stage B2B SaaS founder. Well, hi Dimitri, thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Thank you very much, Don. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure for me as well. When I learned a little bit about your organization, I realized an organization that's big in the data space. Funny enough, recently I had a couple of companies that were data infrastructure players or doing a number of things with data, either collecting uh -huh. data, providing data infrastructures to start building applications from there. Yeah, of course, it's a big topic. Data is a big deal, right? It's the most important asset that people have. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I also had someone on the podcast at some point in time that was actually, yeah, working, put a value on it, like a financial asset and a physical asset or a real estate asset, making data an asset as well on the balance sheet. Yeah. That's maybe a different topic. But before we start talking about your company, Big Idea, a little bit about you. If you would have to describe yourself in two or three words as an entrepreneur, what are the words that you would use? I would use kind of immigrant because I mean, you know, I kind of have that mentality in terms of, you know, a little bit of hustle and a little bit of stick to itness. I would use kind of strategic in terms of understanding. I'm pretty good at understanding trends around industries and who are the various players and, you know, both competitors and partners. And I would say easygoing, right? I think I kind of am liked by a lot of our employees. Generally speaking, I don't get overly panicked. And so, yeah, I would say those qualities in terms of that kind of hustle, that kind of immigrant type style hustle around having kind of a strategic view of, of a category or industry, and then just being likable. Good. Nice characteristics. To make the bridge to your company, you started it about six years ago, six and a half years ago. Yeah, a little bit. Um, a little bit six years ago, yeah. What was the big idea? What, yeah, yeah the big idea. The big use. Yeah. So, you know, I think data has increasingly become more important, especially kind of over the last few years as more and more companies collect more data. They use that data for driving new business, whether it's online or even in physical stores. So data has this kind of dual characteristic of being both valuable, right? Because you use it for personalization strategy, for data commercialization, for AI, BI, but it also represents vulnerability, right? Risk. And so the question becomes, how do you get your arms around the risk while also making it easier for people to be able to kind of pick out the data that's going to be most valuable. And that requires kind of an understanding of the data. And that is hard because data is very voluminous. It has a high velocity of creation and it has a high variety, right? In terms of data types, right? An image is different than data you have in a database, which is different from data you have in a document, which is different than data that may be kind of traversing companies through an API. So how do you deal with kind of the nature of high velocity, high volume, high variety data and get your arms around it so that you understand both the risk and reward around the data? And so the big idea for Big ID was we thought we could basically build a better mousetrap to help organizations know their data. Now, when we started, we thought, okay, the key driver is going to be privacy because privacy, especially these new regulations like GDPR and CCPA, introduce challenges for companies. Because it requires companies to rethink their approach to data where they essentially become the custodian as opposed to the data owner. When companies were the data owner, they just collect volumes of data at very high velocity and they never have to worry about whose data they have. Along comes GDPR and GDPR says, no, 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 no. 
that data belongs to the people you collected the data from. So you're just sitting on top of it. You're a custodian. You're responsible for it, but it's not your data. It's their data. That's true. And if they want their data back, you got to give it back. If they want you to delete the data, you got to delete the data. If they want you to report on what data you've collected from them, you got to report on that collection. And so the way people were kind of thinking about data discovery and data knowledge just didn't allow it, right? Pre kind of 2016, it, it was just impossible. And so we said, okay, you know what, how are we going to solve this problem of going through petabytes of information and figuring out what data belongs to Ton and what data belongs to Dimitri? And it's a very hard problem because obviously if I have your name and my name, pretty clearly different. If I have your social security, my social security, pretty different. If I have your credit card, my credit card, you know, different numbers, they look different. But what if you and I both live in the same neighborhood? So we have the same zip code. What if you and I are on the same network subsegment? We may have the same kind of dynamic IP address. We may have the same password, right? Maybe you like to use the word password. Maybe I like to use the word password. And so it gets harder and harder once you go beyond those kind of 10, 12 PII attributes to figure out what belongs to what person. And so we engineered a completely novel approach using a type of machine learning called graph that allows you to build kind of a graph of all the data that belongs to a particular identity. That was the big idea of big ID. And that in turn allowed us to go through very, very large volumes of information and figure out this GPS coordinate, this cookie, this session key, this website click screen belongs to Ton, and this one belongs to Dimitri. So that's where we got started, which is kind of, we said, hey, there's going to be this tailwind of privacy. It requires you to kind of rethink your approach to data rights. And that's where we got our start. Wow. First of all, kudos for attacking such a hard problem, because this is certainly not something that's an easy one. But on the other hand, you know, of course, if it was easy, everybody would do it. What is the opportunity if you get this right? So looking at a sort of before and after between organizations that didn't have it and now have big idea. Yeah, well, look, I think it's a difference between manual and automation, right? I think there's a cost and a complexity around doing anything manually. A, you're gonna never going to be able to do it completely. So usually when you have technology, you know, the old adage is most technology comes from replacing spreadsheets, right? So if you think about, you know, what people use spreadsheets for, they use it for all kinds of things, lightweight databases, they use it for kind of comparing, note-taking. And to some degree, the alternative to doing this to some of the technology like Big Idea or Big ID for privacy is around spreadsheets. But spreadsheets are obviously not going to be very, you have to do manual entry. You're only going to be looking in some places. Nobody's going to be reading thousands of documents or millions of documents looking for information on Dimitri. No one's going to be looking through Snowflake or so, but it's replacing manual. And manual, again, error prone, incomplete. And so the difference is, and expensive, I should add. So I think the difference is replacing kind of something that is manual that will never give you a complete picture that is going to be very error prone because it relies on transcription and is never going to be very accurate because it requires us to kind of like estimate and eyeball yeah. with something that's fully automated that looks across all your data that has you know machine learning to kind of manage the accuracy and that doesn't rely on humans, expensive humans to go through things. So yeah, that's kind of the big advantage, automation. If I may ask, like, what is a highly beneficial use case where organizations use yeah, this new capability to improve something else in a bigger way? So, so there's typically three, yeah, there's three use cases. There's privacy, there's security, there's what's called data governance. So 
in privacy, privacy starts with understanding your personal data. Where do you have people data, right? And then there's different things you need to do in privacy. Sometimes it's reporting. Sometimes it's reporting to the regulator. Sometimes it's reporting to your customer, right? But privacy starts with understanding where do I have people data and not just what is the people data, but whose people data do I have, right? Is it Dimitri's? Is it Tons? Is it Sophia's? So privacy is a common use case. And that begins with building what's called an inventory of personal data. And then, you know, again, different kinds of reporting, sometimes to the regulator for things like assessments of your privacy risk or a demonstration of how you collect and process data, which is called ROPA, or just reporting around somebody wants to request their access to their data, just going out and finding all the data for that person. Secondly, it's security, right? I talked about security has a risk to it. Well, you may have highly sensitive or even critical data. Maybe it's client identifying information. Maybe it's non-public information data. Maybe it's health data, PHI data. Maybe it's credit card data that's covered under PCI regulations. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to locate that and figure out what's vulnerable, right? What's not encrypted? Where do I have duplication? Is it in an S3 bucket on Amazon that doesn't have any access control? So security is all about finding sensitive and critical data And then understanding kind of, you know, is it vulnerable? Is it at risk? Is it in a file folder that doesn't have any access control? Is it in a bit bucket that doesn't have access control? Thirdly, it's around data governance. Data governance is really around helping organizations manage their data for the purposes of getting value, like data analytics, data commercialization, et cetera. Yep, true. But again, like you can't sell data unless you know what data you're trying to sell, right? You can't just sell stuff blindly. You can't do data personalization Unless, hey, this is the data I have on this individual. How am I going to do data personalization? I don't know if it's Dimitri's data or Tom's data. How am I going to do AI? Like, what data am I going to use for AI? The good stuff or the bad stuff? And unless I have a technology like Big ID, how do I make sense of the good stuff versus the bad stuff? Same with BI, right? My boss comes to me and says, hey, great report you did. What data did you use to generate the report? What am I going to tell them? The first thing I found, you know, whatever... No, you got to be able to scour your data investments and figure out where the good stuff is. So I would say across each of those segments around privacy, which is more of a compliance use case, security, yep. which is all about kind of managing theft and exfiltration risk. And then lastly, around governance, which is all about finding value around the data and being able to find the Glen Gary, Glen Ross data. We help in all three accounts. Nice. And I can clearly see the importance of every area. And typically, I would say large organizations, correct? We have a mix. We have a mix. I would say in the small organizations, they tend to be tech companies. But yes, a mix of large organizations and mid-sized organizations that tend to be tech companies. Okay. So it started about six years ago. Then you decided to kind of start building. And what I'm always interested in is to understand, like, yeah, how do you start? Like, what strategic choices do you make about what to build and not not to build? Do you have any anecdote on that? Yeah, look, there's two ways that companies start. This is my third company. So I'll give you kind of the two ways people start companies. Thing one is they get a, f- a handful of design partners you know, that are friendly and they basically give them, they talk to them about a problem they have, hopefully a common problem, and they build around those design partners and try and convert those design partners into customers. So that's one way to do it. And that's very common today, especially where a lot of the investors have a community of kind of CIOs, CISOs, CDOs that could act as those design partners. If you don't have design partners, which we didn't, right? We didn't start with a community of potential design partners. We actually just started with an idea. And there, what we did is you build a straw man, you build an MVP, minimum viable product. And you use that as kind of for demonstration purposes and hopefully to secure some interest. 
Now, we started with kind of an MVP around a few areas of privacy and security that were related and connected. And we sort of kind of built and said, okay, here are five things we could do with this kind of know your data, data discovery. And we kind of went and talked to a few customers and said, hey, is this of interest? Is this of interest? What is the, you know, what are you willing to spend money on? And we found that, you know, the data rights problem, the being able to report on to an individual around what data you have on them was a big problem. They really didn't have a way of doing it outside of this kind of ineffective manual way. And so that's kind of where, so we drilled down on that. Now, as we grew as a company, we came back to those other areas. Like we were right on all those areas. It's just that we prioritized the one place where we could get, you know, large deals, you know, because at the end of the day, that becomes the group point. Let me make a small interruption here. Dimitri just made an excellent remark that enabled them to get substantial traction from the start. Although they could have built a product that covered multiple use cases, they decided to focus on the one that solved the most valuable and critical problem, the problem that everyone was prepared to pay a premium for. That enabled them, and you'll hear more about it in a couple of minutes, to create something that their customers could not live without and would actually fall in love with. It's a trait remarkable software companies master. They realize they can't please everyone, then focus on the essence, create new value possibilities based on those insights, and then create something that's valuable and desirable. Now you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. So, like I said, I think two ways. One is get a few early design partners that are willing to collaborate with you around a particular use case, which is very common today because people tend to start with much larger dollar amounts and their VCs are a bit better connected. Thing, you know, second method is really more about starting with kind of a hypothesis, the scientific method, you know, where you start off with a hypothesis and then you test it. So uh, being being a a graduate in physics, you know, I did graduate work in physics. We did the scientific method approach where we said, here's our thesis. We think these couple areas are going to be a problem. They're connected. Yeah. And then basically try and find somebody that double clicked on one of those areas and then kind of work with them to refine it until they were, until we got it to a stage where they were willing to pay us. Exactly. So you did, did you bootstrap the company in the first place? No, but we raised a very small amount of seed money. You know, nowadays it's almost people are starting with like 40, 60 million in seed. We started with two, which is not a lot for an enterprise company. Indeed, exactly. In that whole process, what decision appeared to be really important for the success that you have today? You know, look, I think a couple of decisions. So early on, once we kind of did that straw man strategy of being able to kind of say, here's a thesis, we're going to test it. I think once we did that, we kind of like doubled down on that particular area. Once we found kind of, a pressure point, we kind of said, okay, let's just focus on this and do a good job here. And so that's what kind of got us through the first two years. I sometimes describe that as a swim lane. We needed a clear, definable swim lane that we could own that was differentiated from other technology players. And we went down that path and we invested in that path. And it actually worked out for us. We were able to do the classic, you know, 5X revenue in year one, 3X revenue in year two. And only later did we start thinking about expanding beyond that initial swim lane. And the reason for that was, one, we raised more money. And so we needed to say, okay, where do we go from here? Secondly, is because a lot of people started copying us, right? A lot of people were saying, oh, yeah, we do exactly what Big ID does. So once you have success, 
it becomes harder to keep that manageable swim lane because everybody says they do the same thing and it becomes confusing for the customer. So we had a good two years where we were able to highly differentiate. And then at some point people said, oh yeah, we do it too. And so we needed to kind of move on and expand our story. Yeah. And it's a remarkable effect. I'm talking about building the defensible differentiation. At what point did you start to see that defensible differentiation becoming stronger? I don't know if it's stronger or weaker. I actually think it always is a little bit weaker. So two things happen as you get bigger, assuming you have some success, everyone's going to basically go towards kind of more of a platform play. Once you go to a platform pay, you become more diluted in your messaging and you kind of end up having more and more competitors. So I think the swim lane becomes broader until it becomes basically an ocean, you know, the kind of classic red ocean. And so I do think that you end up kind of going into other areas. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's like the defensible differentiation is, of course, always about an amount of time. The question is how quickly can a competitor catch up with you? In that whole process, what have been the hardest not to crack for you? Well, look, I think, you know, again, as you get larger and larger customers, I think they're demanding. So a lot of large customers have very specific needs. So I think being able to accommodate both requests from existing customers as well as new features. So that is becoming harder. I think just being able to, you know, as you become kind of more of a platform, you're competing with more companies. So you find yourself in bake-offs across more types of technologies. So yeah, I think there's just, I think those are the general kind of technology kind of life cycle issues. Yeah, they are indeed. And it's the question. Have you found any, you got any framework or any methods how to stay ahead of that? Well, I don't know if it's a framework. I think this is kind of just being an entrepreneur. You're constantly looking over the horizon, trying to kind of pull ideas. You know, I think, you know, people care about, you know, reporting and time to value. So you kind of need to be able to demonstrate reporting and value around all these things. We built kind of an app store so that we have a more modular way of adding new functionality that's a bit more efficient than just kind of building out our product laterally. But look, these are classic things. You know, very rarely do you find like one thing you've done well. You know, sometimes you get that in areas where you're coming in and displacing an existing technology. So to some degree, if you think about like a snowflake, a snowflake is coming in and replacing data warehousing. There's already an established category. They're not doing green ocean. They're doing red ocean with a cloud first approach. ServiceNow was replacing BMC, right? They were basically doing service desk. They came in with a better mousetrap. And then, you know, you look at CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike was replacing kind of McAfee. So there's already an established base. So in those particular cases, you could just kind of double down, double down, triple down, because it's a very, very deep ocean that you already have a market opportunity. For what we were doing, it was a little bit different. You know, you have, there was no really established category. There's no MQ, there's no Forrester wave. You got to kind of create the demand. But once you do, you know, competitors flood in because there's been just a surfeit of VC money over the last two, three years. And yeah. so it's very easy to all of a sudden, everybody kind of raises money, adds functionality like yours. So it's a little bit trickier. I think in a kind of new world, I think there, if you're able to go into an established market and basically say you're going to replace it, that in my opinion is kind of the best. If you have a compelling story there where the ROI is very straightforward, that's the best of all cases. And that's why I think you've seen some companies so like Snowflake take off because they're coming in where you already have like a Teradata, Yellow Bricks, other kinds of technologies. And they're just basically saying, we're going to deliver you that less expensively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's always about the value and how quickly the value can be realized. And I think that's always the opportunities for new technologies and new vendors to come in. But still, you have to do it, you know, and it's how hard the problem is that you're solving here. You've got questions, we've got answers. 
business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Well, I'm always, I mean, super interested always in the whole kind of notion around getting traction. So what did you learn from getting the first 100 customers? Well, the first 10, like what was the biggest? And you think you look, you know, I think you're always kind of looking for patterns, right? That you can kind of double down on. And like I said, for us, it was pretty easy because we only focused on one area around kind of data rights. We kind of made that our thing, our swim lane. But, you know, when you sell to enterprises out of the gate, you know, companies tend to do one of two things. They sell to large companies up front or they sell to small companies up front. When you sell to small companies up front, you can find repeatability is a little bit easier because there's less services to support those customers. It's a little bit more self-service, but then you miss on some of the enterprise class features that you need, like password vaulting, other security features. So you have to, you kind of make a bed. So we chose enterprise. So we built a lot of the enterprise features like role-based access, other kinds of security features, but there you come up with, well, you need to customize to this or that customer. Like, you know, the way, you know, a Goldman does things is different than the way Morgan Stanley does things. They don't have like they're each a snowflake. And then you got to go down market, which we are now, where you got to kind of create something that's easier and simpler. So yeah, I think it depends. We started with big and went small. And then some people start small and go big, but there's challenges with both. That is, of course, always challenging with both. If you look in hindsight, what is a big lesson that you learned that, that if you would do it again, would start with? The biggest thing I would kind of learn is I think if I was to kind of do this again, there's always two kinds, as I mentioned. There's companies that focus on Red Ocean, which is established categories where there's opportunities to displace, but there's already a very clear TAM. And there's companies that do Green Ocean, where it's or Blue Ocean, I forget, it's Blue Ocean, where there's a hypothesis that this is going to be a new use case. They each have their opportunities and challenges, right? So Blue Ocean is about creating a new category, but you have to do a lot more evangelism and education. Red Ocean, the category already exists. You just need to find enough compelling value to be able to displace existing customers. So again, Red Ocean has challenges. I think, you know, my next company, I've done a few Blue Ocean companies where you need to kind of build up the market segment and get to like an MQ where this becomes kind of part of the buying cycle. And that could take years, right? It could take, my last company, it took a decade. In this company, it's a little bit faster, but it could take time. Whereas in the other one, there's an established category now you're really just racing to become kind of, you know, somebody that's kind of novel in that category. I probably, my next company, that's what I'm going to do instead. Although I'm getting older. I don't know how many more companies I have, but if I do have one, it'll probably be focused more on Red Ocean because the opportunity, you don't have to go through that same cycle of reinventing the wheel, right? But like I said, there's examples of success in both, right? Look at all the blockchain companies. They're not replacing anybody that didn't exist a decade ago. So you have some sizable entities that may be struggling right now, but those are all blue ocean companies. True, exactly. Yeah, some of them, of course, are now solving some existing problems in a new way. So at the end, there's some, yeah, they have something to refer to. But of course, then they can create large value whereby customers are going to move because of that value. One thing, when I wrote this book about what are the big traits that 
define those software companies that we start talking about and keep talking about. You've been an entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur for a while now. Three companies started, as you said. What do you believe are is a key trait for yeah, becoming remarkable in the eyes of your customer? I think there's a couple of ones. One, you have to be very clear in terms of the value you demonstrate. So the way I kind of look at it is there needs to be something in your product that somebody could report back to their boss and say, we could not do this without this product. So that kind of that wow moment, right? Like without pick your vendor, we would not be able to find this out. If there is nothing in your product that you could basically have your sponsor take to their boss and say, we couldn't do this without this or that company, that's a challenge, right? Because unless, because then it's hard to demonstrate value, right? So that kind of comes down to the value of your product. And I kind of summarize it as, do you do something? Give those wow moments. You do something that without you, you couldn't do it. Yeah. The next thing is really around kind of the upkeep of the product, right? Is it very easy for them to, and this is where you get a lot of the red ocean companies, but it's true for both blue ocean and red ocean. Are you delivering something where people already know they need it, but in a, an efficient way, if you need a small army to upkeep and maintain the product and figure the product, there's a high degree of complexity, then you, again, it becomes harder and less compelling if it's not kind of fully automated. It's the more automated, the better, right? And this is where some of the Red Ocean companies kind of have their compelling event it's because they come in and say, look, you don't have to maintain this on-premise software, right? That was Salesforce. Salesforce displays Siebel because they said, look, Siebel is expensive to maintain. It's on-premise. We're going to do everything in the cloud. Sure. We're going to give you a better user experience and a more efficient. And the third one I would say is just user experience, right? So you hear people talk about, does your software delight? You know, do people enjoy using it? right? Does it get the kind of G2 most favorable thing? So yeah. I would say there's three elements. One, does it tell you something that they couldn't figure out with, without you? Yeah. Secondly, is it efficient to kind of install and operate? You know, can you do this kind of fairly automatically? And, you know, sometimes you kind of get into the time to value. And then thirdly, does it delight, right? Do the people that are actually using it day-to-day fall in love with the product? Obviously, it's hard to break up with things that you fall in love with. So I would say those are the three big ones. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I've seen it over and over again in my career. One thing I want to kind of pull back on a little bit is the previous periods we've been into because your company started pre-COVID. We are now behind this, possibly with another economic downturn coming up. What are some of the big lessons you learned in that period of not only surviving as a company, but actually coming out stronger? I think, you know, like one of the obvious things is working remote and it's a different kind of sales cycle especially for enterprise companies. So SMB companies have always kind of focused on being able to do more with inside sellers. And to some degree, everyone is now doing inside sales, right? Salespeople don't go on site. You don't have architectural meetings. You kind of do everything over the phone. It becomes, you know, there's still value in meeting people face-to-face, but you do it far less frequently. People have moved around. I moved to Miami as an example. I, I don't live in New York anymore. So that is one thing we learned how to become more of an efficient company, just doing everything remote first. Secondly, I think as part of that, you know, you have to become a lot better on the pre-sale side, kind of talking to the customer, listening to the customer, responding to what the customer is looking at. So I think there's a different kind of sales motion when you're doing everything remote or WebEx or Zoom, when you're doing all the presentations that way. And that includes kind of discoverability. So yeah, I think those are the two big ones, right? Kind of moving to this kind of remote first environment. And then what does that translate to from a kind of a selling kind of motion? Yeah, exactly. Uh, these, are, these are, of course, particularly with COVID, of course, super, super important. Was the COVID period and all the implications it had on business and people, was that creating a tailwind for you or something else? 
So our tailwind is a little bit different. So initially our tailwind was the regulations. COVID is, you know, I think the companies that did best because of COVID are the ones that enable remote work like Zoom or DocuSign. And people kind of invested in those technologies early. And I think they kind of fell off. They pre-bought. So I think the ones that, you know, AWS, cloud infrastructure, anything that was basically, I don't have to operate a data center. I don't have to, you know, I could basically get remote dial-up. Those technologies tend to do very, very well. We were more regulatory. I think those initially actually had a dip because all the budget basically went over here, right? So we did good. I would say we, you know, some of the products that were all about kind of remote work automation are the ones that people prioritize, yeah, right? How do I collaborate? How do I do sales cycles remotely? Anything that was focused on getting my people remote are the ones that did the best, right? Like, you know, and again, I use the Snowflake example. You didn't have to go operate your Teradata in your data center. You know, you just, it's in the cloud. How awesome is that? I don't have to have people to do this. Those technologies, and, and we're not that technology. We're more about kind of security and regulatory, which is a little bit different. Yeah, I understand that. But I mean, that's the reason why I'm also asking. So, anyways, yeah, so I don't know what to tell you. We grew, um, you know, we doubled, but we didn't triple, we didn't quadruple. And it's because we don't exactly speak to the kind of remote work effort. The ones that did yeah, are the ones that tripled and quadrupled. Yeah. It could, of course, be that you've made some changes that helped you yeah, position yourself in a completely different way to get the traction again up. We never lost the traction. Like I said, we, we doubled each of the years. So it's not... It's just that I think, you know, you've seen a few companies during COVID that, you know, quadrupled or quintupled. And it's because those tend to be ones that focused on that whole kind of remote work use case, right? If I could basically get you to do design work remotely, if I could, like, whatever that is. But I think they are also, now that everyone's kind of remote, they bought those technologies, right? Which is why DocuSign is struggling a little bit and the CEO left or Peloton is struggling. Yeah, interesting to see indeed those type of, yeah, scenarios happening. Funny enough, I think the Peloton was a great initiative for something during COVID to keep people sane and healthy, but apparently turned out differently. Almost last question. From all the wisdom that you've gained over time being a CEO or founder of a tech SaaS company, what would be a do and what would be a don't in terms of advice that you could give to other CEOs? So look, I think technology companies are personal. I think the one thing that I would encourage everybody to do who's starting a company as a founder is... Don't hire your first salesperson before you sold the product. Don't hire your first marketing person until you've done some of that yourself. So my personal belief, and it comes back to what I describe myself as, that kind of immigrant, and I watched my parents as immigrants also, you know, when they were kind of in the business, I think you need to have a feel for the business. If you haven't sold any deals, you can't expect somebody else to sell them. If you haven't done any like AdWords or events and designed the booth, you can't expect somebody else to do that. So I personally think, especially for the front office, like in terms of go to market, people hire really quickly, especially in a generation when there's, you know, dollars are free. And I personally think that it's important to get, you know, get behind, get the experience of the product, you know, as the seller. So I sold our first eight, nine deals like myself, because, you know, how am I going to be compelling unless I've done it before? So, yeah, exactly. And a do and a don't. You know, don't. Well, maybe that was the don't. Don't hire. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess, yeah, there's a corresponding don't. Look, I don't know. I don't know if there's like don't do things. The other thing is I would also encourage people to never, you know, just kind of assume a strategy, kind of a single threaded strategy and just say, I'm going to execute on this. Like I described when we first kind of built our product, we built kind of a few 
use cases out of the gate. And then we kind of saw what was going to be successful. I do think this kind of scientific hypothesis, but at the same time, provide you some flexibility. So I do think that if people become too single threaded, there's risk in that. And just like in a military operation, you don't just send all your troops over here and then do nothing with the rest. You need to have a few kind of ways to kind of fight and compete. So your strategy needs to be a little bit more multidimensional, right? I don't think you should put all your eggs in the proverbial basket. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for sharing all the wisdom. Where can people go to find out more about Big Idea or to connect with you and say hi? BIGID.com. And if you want to say hello, info at BigID.com. Very good. Well, thank you, Dimitri, for making the time available today. Fascinating story about like the journey you've been through. And thanks for sharing the wisdom. Yeah, thank you very much, Tom, for having me. And this ends my conversation with Dimitri. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Dimitri Sirota, co-founder and CEO of Big Idea. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.